Hi, I'm Shari De Silva, curator of the Jeffrey Bauer Art and Archival Collections at the Lunaganga Trust. This podcast is part of the Bauer 100 program, a celebration of the architect's 100th birthday. Jeffrey Bauer was famously silent about his work. There are only a handful of records where he opens up about his influences, routines, and practice. He also rarely saved material like correspondence or sketches, which often form the core parts of an archive. The Oral Histories Project tries to fill this void by collecting the memories, stories, and experiences of Bawa's friends, clients, and colleagues. Thank you for tuning in. Today we have British architect, educator, and author David Robson on the program. David authored a number of publications on Geoffrey Bauer, and he has also been documenting the architectural landscape in Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia. David recalls meeting Geoffrey for the first time at the age of 25, when he came to Sri Lanka from England as a lecturer for the Department of Architecture, which was under the Faculty of Natural Sciences in Colombo. I met him at the guest suite at number 11, Geoffrey Bauer's residence in Colombo, where David himself had spent many days while working on his books. He discussed how his first publication, titled Geoffrey Bauer, The Complete Works, came into being, and how Geoffrey and his work have continued to fascinate him over the many years of his research. David remains amazed at the fact that Geoffrey Bauer took up architecture relatively late in life, having qualified as an architect only at the age of 38, after first qualifying and practicing as a lawyer. He describes the unique style of architectural drawing that comes of Jeffrey's practice and its continued influence. David also acknowledges the many engineers and architects that were an integral component of Jeffrey's practice and were in fact the reason some of the bigger projects like the Parliament, Rhone University, and Kandalama Hotel could be realised. What's your first memory of Geoffrey Bauer? Well, actually, I do have a very clear memory of seeing the article in the Architectural Review. Now, that would have been mid-60s, I can't give you the date. Uh-huh. But I remember being struck by these very beautiful drawings, which were quite like anything that one had seen. It reviews six projects by Geoffrey. Do you remember which projects? Oh, well, there is Ina and Strathsby. I'm not very good on memory these days. It was interesting because the same drawings, the same illustrations, appeared at more or less the same time in the Observer Annual Review. And that was accompanied by a piece that Geoffrey wrote, which was one of the few things that he wrote. But anyway, I just remember that. It didn't really connect with me. I mean, if you really were to ask me honestly, at that time, I probably didn't even know where Ceylon was. You know, I mean, it was just somewhere out there. And then, of course, I, just by complete fluke, I studied at the Bartlett University College, and I finished in 1968. And in the middle of 1969, the head of the school, who was Lord Llewellyn Day, he rang me one day and said that there was this lectureship in Sri Lanka, and if I was interested, should apply and I would get it. So that's how I ended up here. And then very quickly, I got to know Jeffrey, but he was really quite remote. I know that because, for instance, I was exactly 25, which is quite astonishing. I was very lucky to get this lectureship at the age of 25. And Jeffrey was exactly twice my age. He was 50, so there was a big gap. And I was really friendly with the people who worked for him. That was Anura Ratnavarishana, Ismat Rahim, Feroz Choksi, Vasantha, and so on. And I would go to see them in the office. 
and you know what the gallery cafe right. is, how, it, how it's where the little boutique is that sells things. That's where everybody, all the architects worked. And then Jeffrey sat, you could see him across the courtyard. He's sitting where the cakes are. So he was sort of really quite a remote figure. But I would invite him to come two or three times. He came for crits mm -hmm. in Ward Place. I was the lecturer at the School of Architecture, uh, had started as a technical college in Moratura, but then it was brought into the university when he was in the University of Ceylon, Colombo, and it was in Ward Place. So then it was a marvelous location, and because it was in the center of the city, it was very easy to invite people to come, whereas later, when it moved to Moratura, nobody wanted to go there because it took so long but Jeffrey would come. Then, out of the blue, he invited my wife and I to come for Poya lunch at Lunuganga. So we drove down, and it was much more difficult to find Lunuganga then than it is today. It was deliberately slightly hidden. Anyway, we got there, and we finally you know, rang the bell, and somebody came and opened the gate. We walked up. And Jeffrey had said on the telephone, oh, you better take me as you find me because I'm going to be chopping trees down. So my wife, Ursula, said, gosh, that's going to be interesting. I can't imagine Jeffrey Bauer in a lumberjack shirt with an axe. We arrived and we were taken up and we threw the corridor and on the lawn there was Jeffrey sitting in the beautiful white trousers and a shirt and a little table and gin and tonic. And he was shouting to all these different boys in the trees, you know, chop this, chop that. But he wasn't doing anything, you see. So that was our first real encounter with Jeff. But during that period, I'm talking now about 1970, 71, I really would never have said that I was anything more than a slight acquaintance. I mean, he was quite remote and quite aloof. But then 10 years later, I came back to Sri Lanka. I was an advisor to the government's housing program. And by that time, I came back in 78. And then by then, all these people who had worked with Jeffrey had left, except you know, everybody, Vasantha also by then had left. They'd all gone off to do their own things. And I think Geoffrey was a little lonely. And he had these huge projects. So there was the parliament, and then a little bit later there was Rahulu. So then I, I had quite a different relationship with him because the, the difference in our ages had in a way shrunk because ten, we were all both 10 years older. And he was missing people that he could actually talk to about his work. But he was also interested to know about the work I was doing. So we would meet sometimes for a drink in the evening. And at that time, the Ruhunu, a little bit later, but it was very strange because, of course, the office was in Alfred House, but there was a model of Rahunu here. So we would, we would, he would chat about Rahunu. Jeffrey had this very close associate who was Ulrich Plesner. But anyway, they were very close and they had a close friendship and they worked very close together. And then they had this abrupt ending of their relationship and Plesner went away. Well, he came back and was involved with the Mahaweli. We, at that time, we were renting this lovely house, which was a house that had been designed by Nina de Silva, opposite the museum. It's very tragically no longer exists. And Jeffrey used to ring up and say, could he come for a drink? Because he, he really loved the house. He loved sitting in this. I mean, this is the, one of the things that I'm trying to tell people, that actually Minette had a very big influence on Jeffrey at the beginning. But anyway, Ulrich Plesner turned up. He was in Colombo, 
And I met him at a party. He, of course, had worked with Minette. So I said, would you like to for a drink and see Minette's house? So that was fixed up. And then there's a telephone call, and it's Jeffrey. And he says, David, I hear that you've invited Ulrich. I don't know how, but that's Colombo, isn't it? They had not met since 1967. So we're now talking about 1980, okay? So would you invite me? So the first meeting between Jeffrey and Ulrich happened in Minette's house. So that, that was, the, you know, so I was much closer to Jeffrey in that period. Of course, I left in 83, 82-83, but I kept in touch with Jeffrey, and also I was involved with coming here to do training and things of that sort. And I ended up, Jeffrey asked me to write various articles. So the, the one most particularly was an article about Luluganga, which was written for ICOMOS, which is a UNESCO. And so Jeffrey quite liked, because what I wrote about Luluganga was this idea of a garden is something which is never finished, that for Jeffrey, Luluganga was not something that was ever going to be complete. And so one of the things we talked about was what would happen to Luluganga when he died. And so in the article, I just said, you know, well, you know, it would be terrible if the garden would become a sort of Walt Disney, a Disneyland overrun by tourists. And that maybe the best thing would be for it just to go back to jungle. And he liked that. So then what, so the, the next critical thing that happened was that in 1995, Jeffrey was invited to go to South America, to Sao Paulo, and he, he came via London. He traveled with China, and he stayed, as he always did, with Christoph Bonn and Jean Chamberlain, and there was a lunch, and they, Tenzin Hudson had bought the book what we call the White Book, which had come out in Singapore in 1986. In 1995, they brought out a new paperback. They had bought it and they brought out the new paperback, which had just a little bit tagged on about Parliament and Rahulu. And at this lunch, there was discussion and we sort of, everybody agreed that it just was a, a, a big disappointment, this bringing the White Book out again after nine, ten years, and that so much had happened, and really it was time for another book. So Jeffrey said, yes, but who, you know, who could write such a book? And Christoph said, well, David will write it. So there was this sort of silence, and Jeffrey looked up and said, well, maybe... David's the least objectionable of the alternatives. <laughs> so that was how this idea of writing the book came about. But then it didn't sort of happen overnight. Jeffrey sort of sat on the whole thing for another two years. And then suddenly in 1997, he wrote and said, would you like to come out and let's get started with this book? So that's how I got involved. But the book, which later becomes Bow of the Complete Works, was intended originally to be a book that I was going to co-author with Jeffrey. It was to be a collaboration. I mean, Andrew Endron says, and he's absolutely correct, that if Jeffrey had not had the stroke, in the end, we would have fallen out. And it just wouldn't have happened. Because the White Book, it also, I mean, there were lots of problems in producing the White Book, you probably know about. He fell out with Jim Richards, and people didn't do things the way he wanted them, and so on. So, so Angel Andrew has always said that he's right, that 
I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. But if we tried to do the book earlier in 1995, in the end there would have just been an explosion. And if it had been, say, five or six years later, then everything would have just disappeared. This, you know, the material would not have been available. I mean, it's astonishing how many people I could speak to who were really old and at the point of dying, if you see what I mean. So there I was at this moment. And so, Geoffrey, we didn't have a lot of discussion. There was quite a bit of talk at the end before he then finally said, yes, we're going to do the book. And that was in, I would have left in September of 97. And then, of course, in the March of 98, he had the stroke. So I thought, well, that's the end of that. But the trust, they, you know, they encouraged me to carry on. I mean, I'd started, I'd already mapped out all sorts of things. So the book was really more or less finished in 2000, 2001. But there was no publisher. Nobody was interested. Partly because the White Book existed, you see, 1986 White Book. And it was still selling. And Thames and Hudson said, why, you know, why do we want to do another book? We own this book. But I went to Singapore and talked to various publishers. Willie Lynn, I would have had to put up something like $40,000 up front for that to happen. So nobody was going to do that. And then everything happened in 2001, which it just changed everything completely. Because out of the blue, Jeffrey was given his Lifetime Achievement Award by the Aga Khan. They actually rang me from Geneva and said, We'd just like to inform you that Jeffrey Bauer has been given this award. They rang me because they knew that I was involved. They asked, because every th three years there was the award cycle. It's changed a bit now. They put a huge amount of money. There would be an award ceremony. In this case, it was in Aleppo, in Syria. And they would produce a beautiful book. I'm sure that they have the book downstairs. They wanted to, to know if I would write the essay for this book. What I didn't realize was that the book was produced by Thames and Hudson. So once I got involved with it, and, the, and, and, and then I got these photographers, I could use this woman, Ellen Bine, and this other Christian Richter, and they would come here and do the photography. And then I remember saying to the uh, editor at Thames and Hudson, well, that's the end of the book, isn't it? You, you know, because you've now got this Aga Khan thing. And they said, oh, he said, oh, no, this has changed everything. We definitely want to do the book. So that was uh, astonishing. They worked and the book came out in 2002. And what do you think motivated Jeffrey to call you in 95 and, and go ahead with the book? Do you think, because he was obviously... Nothing was planned. I mean, it was, uh, I think he was very much influenced by Christoph Bonn. Mm -hmm. I, I got on very well with Christoph, partly because, now this is a funny thing, but my wife is Swiss and Christoph Bonn was Swiss. And he quite liked Ursula very much. And he liked being able to chat in Swiss German and so on. I don't know. I, I think he was probably the one in the end who persuaded Jeffrey. But also, I had this very strong connection with Angelendron. And Angelendron has actually been in the back room behind, first of all, the White Book, he had a, an enormous amount to do with. Although, the, you know, this white book, you buy the white book, and it says Brian Brace Taylor. So Brian Brace Taylor worked for the, the Aga Khan publishing in Singapore, uh, and he wrote the main essay in the white book. But he didn't put the book together. The person who put the book together, behind the scenes, was Angelendron. 
he also had an enormous amount to do with the complete works. He helped me, you know, directing where I would get information and so on. Because this place was quite chaotic. I mean, this, we're talking about the time, everything changed in Geoffrey's world when he left Edwards, Reed and Begg. So he left Edwards, Reed and Begg. I'm not exactly sure when, there wasn't exactly a date, but 88, 89, and he moved here. And from then on, it was slightly chaotic. It was, there was Janet, you know about Janet. And then there were these young people, like Sumangala, and they had, you know, not a lot of experience of running an office. Edward Sweet and Begg had, had this backbone which had existed since 1927. That office had run, and there were people in it who worked there, Stanley and people, who, you know... Did it. Do you know why that branched off? I think he was uh, very exhausted by Parliament and Rahuno. These two massive projects. I mean, nobody had built anything as complicated. You know, you take Bento to Beach Hotel, which is a beauty, well, it no longer exists, but a beautiful building, fantastic. But it was built by a local contractor with about 30 drawings. And then suddenly you have a parliament built by Japanese contractors with probably 3,000 drawings. So it's a completely different, If and of course, this is one of the terrible things about the White Book, that the White Book, when it was done, Jeffrey, in the end, did not pay any... He didn't recognize the contribution that his colleagues had made. So, for instance, there's almost no mention of Pulga syndrome. Now, you see, Dr. Pulga syndrome was Jeffrey's partner. He was the business manager. He was the engineer. The parliament could not have happened without Dr. Pulga syndrome. Yes, Je Jeffrey was the genius. The concept was Jeffrey's and so on. But with, if he hadn't had those people, if he hadn't had Vasantha working, it would never have happened. And the funniest thing was that I was asked to give a lecture at the Architectural Association in London about Jeffrey. So this would have been, I suppose it was in 89, I can't remember the exact date. And I said, gave this talk about, and they were interested in Jeffrey because of course Jeffrey had studied the, the AA and so on. So I said, now, you know, his career is at an end and he's retired because that's what we thought. He left Alfred House and there was somebody who was in the audience who was in some way connected. I, I think it might have been Jaime, but I can't remember. I didn't know Jaime at that time. So about oh, 24 hours later, I get a phone call from Jeffrey, and he says, I hear you've announced my retirement, <laughs> and just like to tell you that you're jumping ahead, and just wait and see. And of course, I didn't know. Nobody knew that what he was going to do was to start a new office here. But it wasn't really an office. It was so much as like a studio and with these young people. Of course, it was very exciting. And this was this time he was getting these requests to design these projects, which never happened. And I guess he knew they were never going to happen. He just enjoyed, he got this. The joke was that they, we called them the $10,000 projects that he would get this fee of $10,000, which is probably not true. And then experiment, produce these, like for instance, the Singapore Cloud Center, which would have been a fantastic project. And, and this continued for a couple of years until suddenly you get this real project, which is Kandalama. So I'm sorry, I'm wandering off. Yes, you wanted to know what had caused that to happen. Well, I think that this idea of working on a I think that he was nostalgic for this time when something like the Bento to Beach Hotel, you just produced the idea 
produced a few drawings, went on site, talked to the builder, and it happened. And I know that Christoph Bond, the whole beginning of the relationship, Christoph Bond and Joe Chamberlain, who was Jean's husband, they were the Chamberlain and Bond, Chamberlain Powell and Bond, who built this huge development, the Barbican. Do you know the Barbican in London? And this killed them. It went on for 25 years, and they retired, and they said they were going to spend the, the next few years traveling. And they came to India, and they met Geoffrey in, by mistake, or not by coincidence. They, their common friend was Jim Richards, and they met in Madras, Chennai. And then he took them to see the Madurai Club, and they were absolutely bowled over. And they promised that the next year they would come to Sri Lanka and see what he had been building in Sri Lanka. And the thing that they couldn't get over, because they'd had this nightmare of the Barbican for all these years, and the complications, and the planning problems and all sorts of things. And what they couldn't get over was, here's an architect who just, a client came along and said, we want this, and you did some drawings, and in no time at all, there was a builder, and it was built. And you, if you didn't like it, you changed it a little bit as it went along. Perhaps Geoffrey was one of the last architects in the world who could build like that. All these things happened in that way until the Parliament, and the Parliament changed things. And I think that was the, probably the main reason why he walked away from that office. So then this, from 1991 until, 19, until the beginning of 98, was this astonishing period of great fertility of working with people like Subangala and, and Manchana and Amil and so on, and doing these really quite inventive. I mean, even when you come to the very end and the house on the Red Cliffs at Marissa, well, it's quite an astonishing design for a man who by then was, I have to get my arithmetic, talking about 97, so he was approaching 80. So that the thing about it, about Jeffrey Bauer is that he never repeated himself. You know, he never did another Ina de Silva house. He never did another Bento de Beach Hotel. And so the Jayawadana house was sort of unlike anything that he'd ever done. And yet, when you look at it, it's all part of a consistent, yes, a trajectory. It achieves, in a way, the Polantalawa bungalow and the Jayawadana house have a lot in common. Mm -hmm. So I, I have been really curious about how the practice ran, and from what you say, you can see that it was it had different moments. Oh yes. in, Over the courses. Yes. But I would love for you to speak more about that process. But what is you see? What you have to understand is that Jeffrey inherited, he walked into an office which had existed at that time for 30 years. It's interesting that all the way through till 1988-89, he never ever abandoned the, the name Edwards Reed and Beck. It is said that he always believed somehow legally, that this was a shield that people would, if it was Edwards Reed and Begg, they couldn't sue Geoffrey Bauer. But I don't know whether that's true. But anyway, Geoffrey walked into an office, which by then, at that time, it was still in the fort in Prince Street, in Prince's building. There were all these staff who, had, many of them had been with Edwards Reed and Begg from before the war, at least some of them had. One of the people who I interviewed in probably about 1999 was the son of Reed. He could tell me a lot about how Edwards Reed and Begg were. 
and he came out. His father died in 51. He came out. His mother sort of pushed him to come out and take over the practice that, because Reed, by then, Reed was the only one of the Edwards. Beck, by the way, never existed. The, the practice was really Edwards, Reed, and Booth. Booth left in 38, and they brought in another partner called Beck, who never was in Sri Lanka. He was in Madras, and he was supposed to start a, a, a branch of the office in Madras. So that's how they, it became Edwards, Reed, and Beck. And after the war, Reed continued. And then he died and his son came out. His son had been studying in Aberdeen, which is where Reed had studied. Mm -hmm. But he was completely carved up by this man called Jimmy Nilgiria, who was the, had become a partner of Reed. And Nilgiria didn't want Reed's son anywhere near. So in about the space of a year, Reed's son left and Nilgiria took over. So then what happened was that Jeffrey had worked with Reed in about 1949-50. This is something that Jeffrey didn't really tell people about. Reed Senior? Reed Junior. Reed Senior, because Jeffrey by then had bought Lunaganga and was thinking about being an architect. He, he knew forgotten the name of the, the, the British architect, who the PWD architect. The architect who, he was the, the, the chief architect of the PWD. He designed the Anglican Cathedral. His name will come back to me, don't worry. Anyway, Geoffrey went to him for advice about perhaps becoming an architect. And he arranged for Geoffrey to go like an intern with Reed in Reed's office. So there was this period where Jeffrey worked like an intern. He wasn't paid. He probably didn't go in more than one day a week or something because he was working as a lawyer. So that was his first encounter with Edwards, Reed and Beck. Then he finally went to the Architectural Association and was there 54, 55, 56, 57, finished, came back. And he came back at exactly the same time as Valentine Gunasekra. So they both became, I mean, what was said, I don't know how accurate, is that they were both made 10% partners with Nilgiria. So that's the first experience that Jeffrey had of working in an architect's office. He never worked in, in England or anything like that. His first experience was Edwards Riedenberg, end of 57, beginning of 58, in what was now a sort of fairly tired, run-down office, run by this man called Nilgiria. But in it were people like, for instance, Turner Wickramasinghe, Nihal Amarasinghe, Stanley, all these people. So there was an office there, ready-made, and there were people who would hold his hand or tell him the ropes and so on. And of course, he and... Gunasekera had both been at the Architectural Association together, but they had, had very little to do with each other. And from the outset here in Colombo, they ran separate jobs. They stayed as Edwards Riedenberg in 62 or whatever. It was Geoffrey who initiated the idea of moving to Alfred House because of this Bartholomew's house. And the whole office moved, including Valentin. So that sort of office was still using... I mean, you can see it from the drawings, the working drawings and so on, that all the traditions of how the drawings were made and so on had all been inherited from Edwards Reed and Beck. And they were very professional, Edwards Reed and Beck. I mean, for instance, they did beautiful drawings. They were very good draftsmen. And some of their buildings, I think... that things like the art gallery, the town hall. You know, they're very well built. So that was the environment. But Plesner was a very important. And it's clear that he had a lot of knowledge and experience which Jeffrey didn't have. And Jeffrey, during that period of 
58, 59 through to 65, 66, learned a great deal from Plesner. This was the time when uh, people like Anura, Ismet, Basantha, they were all developing and they got then this opportunity, which was engineered by Plesner, but supported by Jeffrey, that they went to Denmark to study. So this, then the next phase is Plesner leaves and crucially, Pulogs becomes the partner. And Pulogs becomes the, the engine of the office. He gets rid of Gunasekara, he gets rid of Plesner, and so that we, we then run into this period, which is very creative. In, in the 1970s, Jeffrey does some of his most fantastic work, but with this very well-oiled machine behind him, run by Pulogs, and these unbelievably talented people like Anura Ratnambushana. So this fantastic period of the 1970s. And then it changes because one by one, they all leave him. So the next phase really, well, really by the time of the UNP government coming in, in 77, all of these people have left him except for Wasanga. And then comes this period of the big projects. And the only new person to appear is this chap Bodenhaeker, who he persuades to come back from Australia. So this is the, the time of the very big projects. Do you know how big the practice was? How many people? Well, it wasn't as big as you might imagine. For the parliament, they brought in, they hired a whole group of Indian architects and they rented Ina's house. So the project office for the parliament was actually Ina's house in Alfred Place. And I think that at that time, there would have been perhaps about 20 people or something of that sort. Bodenaika came and worked very, very hard and was more than anything responsible for Rahunu. Have you been to Rahunu? I mean, it is the most incredible place. Anyway, it's a great achievement. So Rahunu, there it is, 50,000 square meters of building. I worked on the planning of a university in the 1960s in Germany. A whole project office was set up. There would have been about 40 or 50 people working on that university. It was the University of Ulm. In sometime 1983, 84, when the Aruna was on site, there was some delegation of people came from UNESCO or somewhere. They were going around looking at new universities around the world. And they came to Jeffrey's office by an appointment and they met Bodinayaka, and they said, so, Mr. Bodinayaka, where is the project team located? And he said, oh, I'm the project team. I mean, he, you know, he did an incredible amount of work was done by a very small number of people. He had just two or three draftsmen, technicians, and so on, to do this, this complete university campus. Anyway, so then you come to the final phase, which is the studio, which runs from whenever, 1989, 1990, until the stroke. That was run quite differently because, for instance, if you take, I mean, the, the, the truth behind candle armor is that Jeffrey's studio office were not able, they weren't capable of actually running and that building. I mean, that was all done by Deepal and Milroy. They ran a consultancy. All the design work was done with Amila and Chana and so on, but the actual project and the detailing, a lot of it was done by Deepal and Milroy, which was, I mean, that's not a criticism. That's just how, I mean, Jeffrey wanted this to be a design studio. That was the thing. And it produced all these rather wonderful buildings. So that's the sort of the phases of how the office ran. But as I say, I mean, Jeffrey, I, I, I like Jeffrey. I got on with him. What was there locked inside that was waiting to spring open? And one of the things that 
that, for instance, Plesner tries to suggest in his book is that somehow, you know, Jeffrey actually wasn't very talented or... But that's just not true. I mean, the thing is that Jeffrey did have something which, in the end, you can perhaps only call genius because he continued from 1958 till 1998 producing work and when when Plesner left in 66 everybody said that's the end of Jeffrey Bauer it wasn't it was the end of Plesner and Jeffrey went on he went on without Anura without Wasantha without everybody all the way through till the end so I don't know how how you can explain that. It's I mean, if you think of say say somebody like Mozart was force fed music from the age of five. Most people who are architect become architects have some sort of talent and interest in drawing or whatever in their teens, so on and so on and so on. Jeffrey had none of that. There's no evidence that he was he didn't draw. I mean, he did draw later. I mean, he produced sketches and so on, but he was never a draftsman. So where did it come from? And, and that brings me to one of my questions for you, which is, after, what brings you back to him? I mean, you, you've written a lot on him, and obviously it's an inspiration that kind of keeps... It's, it's a very rich subject, of course. What do you realise when you look back on your life, is that actually all the big things happen to you completely by accident. Nothing ever happens according to plan. I didn't, I had never planned to write a book about Jeffrey Bauer. So that just happened. I mean, the situation arose and I mean, I had admired Jeffrey's work and I talked to him a lot about various projects at various times. This opportunity, this challenge appeared and then just after that, one thing led to the other because I was very fortunate. I mean, I can say this. The book, Complete Works, by the way, I didn't invent the title. It struck me at the time as being totally hubristic that the book should be called The Complete Works, but that's what Tenzin Hudson wanted to call it. But what was astonishing was that once Tenzin Hudson had decided to take this book on, they made such a good job of it. I mean, I can say, not boasting, it's not, I'm not responsible, I think it's a very beautiful book because at that moment in time, Tenzin Hudson wanted to produce a beautiful book. So they used different quality of paper, they had a fantastic designer, they, I had the use of photographers, and so on and so on. So I was very, very lucky. But that book gave me then so much satisfaction that it produced a momentum. So then, because by that time I was a professor in Singapore, I was just struck by the impact the Bauer and the White Book had had. So that led me to suggest a follow-up book, which was beyond Bauer. And I'm very pleased with that book still. I mean, you can see why Bauer the Complete Works survives, but I thought the Beyond Bauer was sort of very much of, of its time, but it still sells. But it was about the influence that Jeffrey had had in Southeast Asia and also with a generation in Sri Lanka. And then, you see, the weird thing about writing is that in 2000, nobody wanted the book. When you're a nobody... Nobody's interested. But once you've had something that has been successful, then the door is open. So then Tenzin Hudson wanted, they, they actually came to me and said, will you do a book about Lunuganga? So then what I then proposed to them was a book about Lunuganga and Brief, and that I would do it with Dominic. So that was a case where Tenzin Hudson came to us and said they wanted the book. So then, maybe by that time I should really have stopped, but I was in this discussion with Thames and Hudson, and I was always worried that 
the complete works was such a big and heavy book and relatively expensive. And I wanted to produce a book that would be smaller and cheaper for students. Well, of course, we, we did this little black book, which you have downstairs. I mean, that wasn't very professionally done. So I wanted Thames and Hudson to do a sort of a mini complete works. And they said, no, we're not interested. That book is still selling. You see, that book sells as many copies per year today as it did in 2002. I mean, it's astonishing. It just goes on and on. Suddenly, they're selling them in China, and I don't know where. It's sold 30,000 copies. So then, because I'd done this other book with the talisman in Singapore, that meant, in the end, we could do the smaller book, which would be in search of Bauer. But that, in the end, was a bit disappointing because it turned out to be more expensive than I had hoped for. I think it sells for three and a half thousand. But I wanted it to something that was cheaper than that. It's still, and the interesting thing is that now the complete works cost eight thousand, I think. But people look at the two, three and a half, eight, and they buy the big one and not the little one. I wanted the little one to be sort of like 1,500. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Maybe then I should have stopped. But what happened was, in 2004, we did the exhibition in Frankfurt, which was a wonderful exhibition. Again, I can say that because I wasn't, I was just one of the team. I mean, Amila worked very, very hard on it. And, and so she was like this end, and I was in England and Germany. The museum in Frankfurt is the Deutsches Architekturmuseum. It's dedicated to architecture and it's on three floors. So we, were, we had the whole building, we had a huge budget. The exhibition would be on these three levels. So there was the question, how would you create a continuity? And there were two staircases and I, just, it just suddenly occurred to me, staircases, you see. So we would put Jeffrey's staircase, Bauer's staircases, up the staircases. And that led me, just really, you haven't seen the, the book yet. I actually did see it in Dominic's office. Ah. <laughs> well, I mean, for instance, there is one page which is uh, on Rome and Borromini, and we photographed the staircases in the crypt of the San Carlo. San Carlo. If you look at the photograph and you look at this staircase here, and people just take things like staircases for granted, but actually across Jeffrey's buildings, there is a huge number of these staircases and they're all different. So, having promised everybody that I would never do another book, including my wife, that there'd never be another anything to do with Jeffrey Bauer. I just couldn't resist. I wanted to do this staircase book. So that explains that's the whole series of books. But I, I will swear that there will never be another book. Absolutely not. I'm always worried. I hope that the people will like the staircase book. I haven't got any reaction yet. But I hope people won't think that it was one book too many. Do you see what I mean? Well, it, it did remind I me, mean, in my education, that was really was how, when we, we studied San Carlo and Bernini and Bernini stairs, and I think it's interesting because what you said about Jeffrey not repeating himself, it kind of crystallizes in his stairs, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because the staircases, they are. One thing that I would I'd love to do one day is just to take a group of architects around Ruhunu. The staircases in Ruhunu are astonishing. So one of the things which I wanted to show is how Jeffrey had this incredible memory. He did take ideas from buildings he'd seen. And this is in no way is this copying. This is taking ideas perhaps from two or three different places and then creating something new. So we know that Jeffrey wrote his dissertation at the Architectural Association about Balthasar Neumann. 
So one of the places that he wrote, uh, mentioned, is the Residenz in Würzburg. So this has this astonishing staircase where you start at the bottom, there's the porte cochere, which is almost like semi-basement, and the prince bishop's coach would come in, and the prince bishop gets out, and then he goes up the staircase and then turns, and above him is this astonishing ceiling painted by Tiepolo. You can't go there now because it doesn't exist, but if you came, if you went to the Bento de Beach Hotel in the 1990s, you arrive in a dark porte cochere, and there is a staircase, and above you is this incredible ceiling. And it is, it is a memory, you know, it, it isn't a copy, but it is a memory of this theatricality of coming from darkness to color and light. Get a sense of how, I mean, Jeffrey's career spans this extremely volatile part of Sri Lanka's history. Yes. Did he ever, did you ever get a sense of how those, how those events impacted the architecture? It's very interesting that he was, for instance, to start with, Jeffrey was in, in Britain during the war. That has not seemed to have had any, it's not something that he ever talked about. He was, before he went to Cambridge, he went, was visited his, his cousin, Paris, and she seems to have had a very big influence on him. And, yes. And he met her again after the war. She came to Lunaganga and so on. But then he went off, and he was in Italy just weeks before the war started and was sort of quite oblivious, really, to what was going on. And then, you know, got these messages from, there was this man in London who was sort of guardian, telling him he had to get back to Britain. But these are not things that seem to have had any very big effect on him. There is this uh, wonderful song from the 18th century called The Vicar of Bray, and it's all about a vicar and whatever happens with the politics, he changes. So he says, whichever, whatsoever king shall reign, I'll be the vicar of Bray. And Geoffrey kept his head down. And if you think about it, his clients, we're talking now about the politics of the, of the 1960s and 70s and through to the 80s, he did work for Mrs. Bandonaika and her two daughters. Uh, he did work for Jayawardena. Bevis was a close friend of J.R. Jayawardena. He did later work for Premadasa. So, I mean, Premadasa, when Premadasa moved into temple trees, he actually rang Geoffrey and said, could you come and meet my wife and I for tea? And we'd like your advice about how to organize the furniture in temple trees. So, and, and then of course, it was J.R. who gave him the parliament job. J.R. actually was the minister of, or the, was it minister of tourism or something at the beginning of Bentota. So Geoffrey, he was a friend of Peter Kahneman, who was a Marxist. So Geoffrey managed to keep in touch he, he managed to keep his real opinions hidden and welcomed by everybody. I mean, there were times when he wanted to leave Sri Lanka or he, he considered leaving Sri Lanka as a burger when many burgers were leaving, but he knew that in the end he was made to be here. He realized that he created this unique world for himself and it could only be here in... It's like cinnamon only grows in... In Sri Lanka, Jeffrey Bauer could only grow in Sri Lanka. I mean, are there any questions you wish you could have asked him? Yeah. Well, that I think I've already mentioned. My question, which he wouldn't have probably been able to answer anyway, was where did it come from? Where on earth did it come from? There was this point where in 1946-47, he could have stayed in Italy. He did plan to perhaps buy a house in Italy. I mean, he was influenced by this friend Guy Strutt, whose aunt had this house on Lake Garda. 
And I, I mean, somebody said to me, you know, it could easily have been that Geoffrey would have bought a villa on Lake Garda and he would have become a sort of antique dealer or something. It could be that he would never have become an architect. This idea that he was an architect, that was a complete surprise to Guy Strutt, do you see? That would be my question. Where did it come from? I don't know. You've done so much work on him. What is the biggest challenge? I don't know. I didn't find, I mean, for instance, writing the book, the first book, it wasn't really a challenge because I had a very, very quickly, I had a very clear idea of what it would contain and how I wanted it to be. It wasn't a I mean, one of the things that I really wanted to do, which Jeffrey would never allow, but one of the things I wanted to do was to include Pulliver syndrome and to set the record straight with Ulrich and also to give mention to all these other people like Ismet and Anura and so on. And I felt that was, you know, it was very wrong that Jeffrey had never acknowledged. I mean, Jeffrey may have, have been very, you know, brilliant in all sorts of ways, but he was hopeless. He would never have been able to do the things he did without these people. I mean, that's the thing one has got to get very clear. Jeffrey depended on all, all these people to do things. Do you have a favorite drawing from the archives? Well, of course, the most important drawing for me is one which is in rather poor condition, which is the section through the Ina de Silva house, which is by Lackey. And then there are other of my favorite drawings are the two drawings of Yafat Endra. The, the, one is the plan, and one is this panorama, which, do you know the drawings I mean? And it is the Hanweller Farm School. And these two drawings were made by as far as I could get out of them, Anura and Ismet both were involved in doing both drawings. They're gorgeous drawings. The drawing style. I'm very interested in the drawing style. That would have been something that would have, I would have written a lot more about if we had done the drawing book. And do you think that that style comes with Lucky? Or what was the sort of... It clearly had a little bit... Obviously, it, it had to do with Lucky. That's why that one drawing section of Ina de Silva House, is by, that's by Lucky. Ismond was also involved. I mean, there was this whole idea of the drawing, measured drawing project, which Ulrich and Barbara were involved right. with. But in a way, I would argue that one of the inspirations for it actually came from Donald Friend. Donald Friend came here and was staying with Bevis for four years or five years. Incredibly prolific period for him. Jeffrey owned quite a number of things from mm -hmm. Donald. And the young Lucky Senenhaka certainly hung, around, hung out with Donald Friend. You know, things like, for instance, the things that Barbara did for Bandawella Chapel, these clay tiles. She worked on that technique with Donald, so that if you go to Brief, you will see some of these tiles that, that Donald did, and that she, he and Barbara did them together at Kalenia. But when you look at his these I went to Sydney and saw the drawings and paintings that they have in the Archive of New South Wales. And then I went to Canberra and I saw his diaries and sketchbooks. One, one key drawing is when Don Friend was staying in brief, he did a little visitor's card with a map of how to find brief. Do you know the one I mean? Is I can tell if I do. Well, it's it's a postcard, and it's how to find brief. But on it, he draws a little train on the railway track, and he draws a mosque and a Buddhist temple and so on. So it's like a pictogram. I mean, I think that 
For instance, the sorts of... Donald Friend was really quite a sophisticated person, quite well read and interested in, for instance, classics and Greek mythology and so on. And he, with, in fact, Ulrich was part of it, he got this sponsorship so that Donald Friend did these aluminium sculptures which several of them were on classical themes, like the Trojan horse and so on. But then when you look at, for instance, Lucky's mural painting at the Achilles at Lunaganga, that sort of theme has come to Lucky from Donald. So, you know, Donald, I think, did have a very big influence and that then transferred itself into this way of drawing. I was a student. I mean, the, the classic modern, modernist idea of architectural drawing. I mean, one of the things you could say about modernism is that in the end, the modernist architects were actually not that interested in context. You could design a building. An example would be Sharon's uh, Philharmonie in Berlin, it was designed for a completely different site. You know, it was moved. Who was bothered? And it's astonishing, actually, that so many, so much of modern architecture, in a way, ignores context. As students, we, you know, you never really drew trees. You just did little triangles, or if you made a model, you put ping pong balls on cocktail sticks. So there was something abstract about the context. Whereas that drawing of Ina's house, those trees are the correct trees. And they're drawn absolutely correctly. And everything about that drawing, it's not a drawing about how do you build it? Because actually the drawing is done as the building is being built. It's not a drawing for the builder. It's a drawing that will tell people like Ina, this is what your house will feel like, not even look like. It's about, it's, it's a sort of like a sort of, what I would call a phenomenological drawing. And that is actually something which is quite new. And people forget, you know, and in fact, what then really had this was the, the great impact was the 1986 book where all of these drawings were reproduced. Though the irony was that they were not the original drawings because Jeffrey felt that the original drawings were too dirty and so on. So this chap called Vernon, you know, so Nonis did all his drawings, copies that people from then on drew quite differently. So, so the, the very early drawings would have been done by Lucky. The thing is that what we forget is that Lucky, the time when Lucky was in Jeffrey's office, it wasn't Jeffrey's office, it was Edwards Reed and Beck. And they were, so Lucky worked first of all for Valentin. He worked with, with both and then, quite quickly, he drifted off. I mean, he went and joined Ina and, and worked with, with Ina. So, so, in a way, he started the ball rolling, but then it was continued by Ismet and, and Anura. So that's why I say some of those, like the Hanwell drawings, Bento to Beach drawings, and so on. There's some lovely drawings from that time. And then it continued. So, for instance, Sumangala was a superb draftsman. And Chana, I mean, if you look at the, uh, if you, I did a book, uh, Andrew Lendron, Architectural Drawings and the Architectural Heritage of Sri Lanka. And some of the most beautiful drawings are by Chana. And of course, Chana, he doesn't draw now, at least as far as I know. I don't think he's done any drawings for years, which is very sad because he was very talented. So that whole way of drawing, the, the way of drawing was part of the way of designing. 
I mean, you could, you should quickly talk to Anura. I mean, Anura told me about how they worked on on Hanwha and how they would go to the site in the car in the morning, and Jeffrey would just sort of sit and, and look at the site and and do little sketches and doodles and talk about things, and then they would go back to the office, and then Jeff. Jeffrey would tell Anura, well, this is what we want to do, blah, blah, little sketches and so on. And then Anura would start doing more, more formal, precise drawings. And Jeffrey would go off to a party or something, and leaving Anura at nine o'clock at night, would come back and sort of look at what Anura, and it, they went on like that. I think he was happiest when he was working. He was happy when he was in Lunaganga. He loved designing and building, that's what gave him pleasure. We would like to thank the trustees of the Jeffrey Bauer Trust and our generous patrons and sponsors for the Bauer 100 program. This podcast is copyright to the Jeffrey Bauer Trust, all rights reserved. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at archive at jbtrust.net. We would love to hear from you. To find more resources on Jeffrey Bauer, attend our events or volunteer, you can visit our website or follow us on social media. Please hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember to leave us a review because this helps people find us more. Until next time, take care.